Section 11 of A Brief History of Forestry by Bernard Fernow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France. No complete monographic history of forestry in France is in existence, and mainly incomplete notes scattered through various volumes were at the disposal of the writer. The work which contains the largest amount of historic information is G. Huffel, Economie Forestière, three volumes, 1904 to 1907, pages 422, 44, 510. Perhaps the most ambitious work in the French language, which has been largely followed in the account here given. It is a collection of ten studies, historical data being interspersed throughout the three volumes, the third volume containing one study entirely historical. L. F. A. Maury, Les Forêts de la Gaule et de l'Ancien France, 1867, 501 pages, is mainly descriptive but full of interesting historic data and detail up to the revolutionary period. Jules Clavet, Études sur l'économie forestière, 1862, 377 pages, 12 degrees, while mainly a propagandist essay rehearses to some extent the history of forest practice, policies, etc., and gives a good insight into conditions at that time. Die Forstlichen Verhältnisse Frankreich by Dr. A. von Seckendorf, 1879, 228 pages, furnishes a few historical notes. Three English publications by John Crombie Brown, Pine Plantations in France, Reboisman in France, 1876, French Forest Ordinance of 1669 and 1882, are profuse and not entirely accurate, but give hints of historic development. C. H. Guillot, L'Enseignement Forestier en France, 1898, 398 pages, gives an insight into the development of forestry education and a complete history of the school at Nancy, and throws much light on other developments. Code de la Legion Forestière par Pouton contains all the legislation having reference to forests. An article on l'idée forestière dans l'histoire by L. F. Tessier in Revue des Eaux et Forêts, 1905, January and February, gives on 26 pages an interesting brief survey of the history of forest policy in France. Forestry in France by F. Bailey in The Indian Forester, 1886, 61 pages, describes well conditions at that time. France is one of the countries in which forestry has been practiced for a long time, and forestry practice has been almost as highly developed as in the preceding Teutonic countries. Germany's neighbor to the west has evolved, however, forest policies and practices which are different in some respects from those of Germany, although the early history of forestry in France was largely analogous to that of Germany. Indeed, until the end of the ninth century, the two countries being undivided, the same usages existed more or less in both, except that in the Gallic country Roman influence left a stronger imprint, Gallia having been long under the dominion of Rome. The fact that France has for nearly a thousand years been a unit, while Germany has until recently been split up into many independent principalities, did much for uniform, albeit less ambitious, development in forestry matters. Most of the forest policy as it exists today was inaugurated during the monarchical regime, which came to an end in 1871. Since that year, a republican form of government, with an assembly of 584, a senate of 300 members, under a president elected by the legislature for seven years, has been in existence. The country is principally a plain, mostly below 1,200 feet in altitude, sloping to the north and west. The mountain ranges, Pyrenees, Alps, Jura, and Vosges, are confined mainly to the south and east boundaries, with secondary ranges, Cévennes, Côte d'Or, Auvergne, etc., in the southeastern part of the country. Of the 204,000 square miles of territory, just about 18% is wooded, which, with a population of nearly 40 million, leaves only about 0.6 of an acre per capita. In its present condition, this area does not produce more than one-third of the home demand, which requires on the average an import, an excess over export, to the amount of about $25 million, 33 million in 1902, representing over 110 million cubic feet annually, mostly woodwork, while the export is of mine props and railroad ties at about half the value of the imported wood. 
Since in 1892 there were still nearly 12%, over 15 million acres, wasteland, opportunity for enlargement of the forest area seems to exist. It appears that about two-thirds of this wasteland is capable of bearing forest, and the existing forest area is capable of much larger production than the present, three-quarters of the production being fuel wood. The distribution of forest area is very uneven, varying from 3.5 to 56% in the various departments. Only about 20% of the area is located on the mountains, 19% in hill country, and 60% in the plains. Six forest regions may be differentiated according to Huffel, which, however, are mainly geographical divisions. The northeast, valleys of Seine and Loire, northwest and central, southwest and Pyrenees, Mediterranean and pre-Alps, Alps. Hardwoods, oak, 40%, beech and ash, etc., occupy fully 80%, while pine, the two species sylvestris and maritima, largely planted, represents the bulk of the 20% of coniferous forest area, fir, spruce, and larch in the mountains forming a very small part. Only 25% of the forest area is timber forest, 38% is coppice, and 35% coppice with standards, 2% being in process of conversion into timber forest. In the state forests alone, however, 68% are timber forest or in process of conversion to that form. Of the 227 million acres, hardly more than one-third belonging to state and communities are placed under the regime forestier, i.e. supervised and managed under working plans. The larger area is under coppice. Three-fourths of the communal and one-sixth of the state's timber forest is managed under selection system. Combinations of farm and forest culture, sartage and furetage, are still quite extensively practiced. The production of saw timber under these practices is naturally small. Of the 40 cubic feet of wood per acre produced in the better class of managed state and communal properties, only 10 cubic feet are saw logs. And if the private forests were taken into consideration, the average product on the whole would appear still smaller, the private properties being mostly small, poorly managed, and largely coppice. Neither the owners nor their managers and guards have, as a rule, any professional education, although the means of obtaining it exist in the schools at Nancy and Bars. Blessed for the largest part with a most favorable climate and with rich soil of tertiary formation, the difficulties in forestry practice experienced by other more northern and continental countries are hardly known. Hence, many practices which are successful in France might in Germany prove disastrous, and such yields as some of the oak forests show, unattainable. The greatest interest for the forester attaches to the methods of conversion of coppice into timber forest, to the extensive areas reforested during the last century, which probably exceed three million acres, and to the reboisement work in the mountains. 1. Development of Forest Property As in Austria Private ownership of forest property is largely preponderant, while state property is small. In ancient Gaul, the Romans found the forest outside of holy groves as communal property. After the conquest, all the unceded lands, especially the extensive mountain forests, were declared either state or imperial property, more than half the whole territory, and were managed as res publica in the administrators of public affairs. And while later, with the advent of the German hordes, property conditions shape themselves somewhat according to their ways. The influence of the Roman law and institutions were never quite eradicated. The country outside of the public property was by the Romans divided into communities called fundus, each placed under a Gallic seigneur or ex, a former chief, now proprietor, his tribesmen and the remnants of the earlier Cecil population becoming serfs. One-third of the fundus was handed to the serfs as their property and divided among them, the first private property. Another third was retained by the seigneur and utilized by means of the service of the serfs, corvées. But, usually so burdened by rights of user on their part, and the last third became common property of the community at large. There remained, however, here and there, also some of the original free communes are Mark, Vicus, so that five different property classes were in existence. The fifth century saw Teutonic tribes, Suevi, Alani, Vandals, and Burgundians, 
overwhelm the Romans who had for five hundred years kept the Gallo-Celtic population under their rule, and these were followed by Visigoths and Franks, who in turn took possession of the country. The conquerors did not drive out the Gallo-Romans, but merely quartered themselves on them under the euphemistic title of guests, assuming to themselves two-thirds of each estate, and leaving the remainder to their hosts. On these lands, undoubtedly, similar economic and social institutions were developed as in Germany. Communal ownership under these was at first developed to such an extent that the Salic laws declared all trees which were not reserved by special sign as subject to the use of all and any of the mockers. But later, as in Germany, the socialistic mock was followed by the feudal system with its banned forests and the creation of great landed proprietors or lords. When Clovis, the king of the Franks, in the first decade of the sixth century, defeated the Visigoths and took possession of the country, he found communal forests of the villagers, ficus, property of seigneurs, equites, royal forests and state forests and remnants of Roman origin. The latter properties and much of the mock forests he claimed for himself and divided two-thirds among his vassals. But the large part of the other third became also gradually property of the nobility and church, so that by the twelfth century only a relatively small royal property remained. Afterwards the royal or state property grew again in various ways as the power of the kings grew. In 1539, Francis I declared the same inalienable, but neither himself nor his successors paid heed to this self-imposed prohibition, and whenever financial troubles made it expedient, they disposed of some of their holdings. By the ordinance of 1566, Edi de Moulin, King Charles IX again declared the domain of the crown inalienable. Nevertheless, he himself in the same year, and repeatedly afterwards, sold parts of his domain. Henry III, in 1579, renewed the ordinance of non-alienation and restored some of the last parcels to the domain by the exercise of the royal right. Himself and his successors, however, continually broke this contract, and the royal domain decreased while that of the seigneurs grew. Similarly to what happened in Germany, the church property was taken by machination or force to increase the holdings of kings or seigneurs. Nevertheless, at the beginning of the revolution in 1789, the royal domain comprised not more than 1,200,000 acres, producing a net income of $1.2 million. Then followed an era of ups and downs, continuous changes of policy, increases and decreases of the property until, with the inauguration of the Republic in 1871, comparative stability was secured. In 1791, after the revolution, the royal property became national domain, and by further spoliation of church property and otherwise, attained an area of 4,300,000 acres. In the law of 1791, a distinction was made between the inalienable domain, which comprises roads, canals, fortresses, harbors, etc., and the alienable national domain, including the forest and other property derived from royal or crown domains. To this national domain was added by the law of 1792 the forest property of the refugees of the revolution, which was, however, later for the most part restored or indemnified. Finally, when by the Treaty of Basel, 1795, the French frontier had been pushed to the Rhine, the total state forest had grown to around 6,500,000 acres, nearly one-third of the total forest area. But through sales and otherwise, this area had, by 1850, been reduced to 3,200,000 acres, and during the period until 1872, the area had been further again reduced to less than 2,500,000 acres. At present, in 1905, it comprises 2.9 million acres, or less than 12% of the total forest area, 55% of which comes from the original royal domain and 22% from original church property and 23% from recent acquisitions secured under the laws of reboisement of mountains, sand dunes, etc. The communal property developed largely in a similar manner as in Germany from the mock and through the feudal system, with its rights of user as a result. In the 12th century, the grandees or seigneurs were active in colonizing their domains, acquired as fiefs or otherwise with serfs and others, giving them charters for villages with communal privileges and rights. 
Under this method, another kind of communal forest property grew up by written instruments or contracts, in which limitations and reservations of rights are imposed by the seigneurs. One of the most usual conditions of the contract was the prevention of clearing or sale. At the same time, a new set of rights of user, this time on the part of the seigneur, brought new complications. One of the worst features originating in the 14th century as an outgrowth of feudal relations was the right of the third, triage, which gave to the seigneur, whenever he wished to exercise it, one-third of the property free of all rights of user. In this way, the communal area was diminished until 1667. The widespread abuse of this right led to an ordinance abolishing it. It was, however, re-established by the Ordinance of 1669 in all cases where the forest had been gratuitously ceded by the seigneurs, or when the remaining two-thirds was deemed sufficient for the needs of the parish. Not until 1790 to 1792 was this exorbitant right finally abolished. As an outgrowth of the revolutionary doctrine of 1793, the most radical legislation decreed presumptive ownership by the municipal corporations of all lands for which the claimant could not show a deed of purchase, excluding any title acquired as a result of feudal relations. The day of revenge of all old wrongs had come, an appeal to justice being useless. The municipalities increased their holdings freely. Although later legislation attempted to arrest this public theft and to restitute some of the stolen property, much of the communal forest area of today consists of this kind of ill-gotten property. Another method of increasing municipal properties was by exchange of territory for the rights of user. Efforts to get rid of these rights, which grew up as described, and to prevent their extension, were instituted much earlier than in Germany. Philip of Valois expressly forbidding such extension as early as 1346. Nevertheless, they continued to grow so that by the middle of the 18th century, they were as general and afforded as great a hindrance to forest management as in Germany. The Ordinance of 1669 also provided for the extinction of these rights, apparently without much success, and the troublesome times after 1789 increased their number. Only when the orderly regime following the reign of Napoleon gave rise to the Code Forestier 1827 was a systematic attempt for their extinguishment by the cessation of territory and cash payment begun. And by this time, the extinction may be considered practically concluded, at least for the state and communal property. Private property, not seigneurial, was but little developed before the 16th century. After that, the frequent sales by the kings and barons gave rise to small forest owners, so that by 1789, over 10 million acres were in such possession. During the 19th century, this grew by purchase, by cessions, and by reforestation of wastelands to double that amount, not less than two million acres being added by the latter cause alone, while some decrease came from clearings. In 1905, private holdings comprised 15 million acres, or 65% of the total. The communal and institution forests, 4.8 million acres, or 21% leaving for the state forest 2.9 million acres, or a little over 12% of the total 22.7 million acres. 22% of the state and communal property is, however, wasteland, and such areas in private hands may be six times as large, there being altogether between 14 and 15 million acres of wasteland. 2. Development of Forest Administration in the earlier times, and indeed into the 18th century, the most important use of the forest was in the mass from oak and beech for the pigs and pasture, for the cattle, besides firewood, for which mostly the softwoods were used. This was given free from the royal domain, and the administration consisted mainly in regulating this use. The main incentive for the regulation of forest use on the part of the king were the interests of the chase. Toward the end of the ninth century, special forest officers Forestarii are mentioned in Charlemagne's celebrated Capitularium, which describes in detail the administration of the public domains. These were, to be sure, only lower-rank officials working under mayors, intendants, and the Count Combes, who was the administrator and soon independent arbiter of the royal domain, as well as the administration of justice in general. His office early became hereditary. 
The first mention of forest masters, Maitre des Eaux and Forêts, dates back to 1291, and later ordinances mention higher officials. But the credit for a full and detailed organization and regulation of management belongs to Charles V, the wise Valois, in his Ordinance of 1376. This organization, after various changes by the end of the 16th century, under the reign of Henry IV, took about the following form. Under a general superintendent of forests, titulary head of the forest service, a number of grand maîtres, general reformateurs, des eaux et forêts, some seventeen were appointed by the king to watch over the conduct of the maîtres and gruyères, officers in charge of the forest districts, maîtrises. All of these officials had their deputies and lieutenants under various designations, procureur de roi, greffier, garde marteau, sergeant du garde, etc. A stamping hammer, kept by the garde marteau, was employed for marking trees which defined the boundaries or which were to be reserved in the fellings. In addition to these regular officers, there were employed a great number of capitaines de chasse, whose functions, as the title indicates, related mainly to the chase. The function of the forest masters did not stop with the supervision of the use of the forest and sale of the wood, but included also the jurisdiction of all misdemeanors and crimes committed in the royal and later in all forests. They became thus gradually a privileged class of immense power. Graft and sale of offices became the order of the day. Sometimes the offices were made hereditary and again were limited to three or four years' tenure in the endeavor to break up the shameful practices. For nearly three centuries all efforts at reform were failures. The method of prescribing the rules and regulations during the 12th to 17th century was by ordinances like those issued by the German princes, the first ordinance on record being that issued by Louis VI in 1215. These ordinances usually appeared under the name La Fée des Eaux et Forêts, the matters of waters and woods. Curiously enough, thus suggesting the relation of the two, the latter term was used exactly like that of the German Faust, designating the reserved territory under the ban, while bois is used to designate actual woodland or silva. In 1376, Charles V, in his endeavor to build up a navy against England, made reservations for naval timber, and also issued the Ordinance of Melun, a general forest code, the provisions of which lasted largely until the reform of 1669. In 1402, the many ordinances, often contradictory, were codified under one text, and another codification was made under Francis I in 1515. By the middle of the 17th century, the devastation of forests had progressed so far, and the abuses in the management of the royal domain had become so evident, that Louis XIV's great minister, Colbert, was induced to make the historical remark, France will perish for lack of woods. Again, the needs of the navy was the prime incentive of the vigorous reform which he instituted after most searching investigations. The result was the celebrated Forest Ordinance of 1669. For this purpose, he appointed in 1662 a commission which not only investigated conditions but was clothed with the power to reform the abuses which it might discover. For this work, he selected four trusted men outside of the Forest Service, to whom later more were added, and gave them the aid of technical advisers, among whom Fourdoir seems to have been the most prominent. Colbert himself gave close attention to this work of reform. As the first act, the commission recommended the ceasing of all cutting in the royal forests, and after deliberation and consultation with interested parties through eight years, the final law was enacted, a masterpiece whose principles and prescriptions to an extent have persisted into the nineteenth century. The commission from time to time made reports, giving their findings in detail, and these form a most interesting record of conditions prevailing at the time. As one of the historians, Jovain, puts it, the commissioners did not recoil before long hours of inspection nor high influence. They neither hesitated to declare against nor prosecute, great and small alike, nor to pronounce a most serious sentence. A thorough cleaning up was done and a complete reorganization secured. By this ordinance, three special courts of adjudication in matters pertaining to the forest were established, with special officers whose duties were carefully defined, 
namely the courts of the Gourville and the Maitrice and the Table de Marbre. The first-named lower-grade courts took cognizance of the lesser offenses, abuses, wastes, and malversations, disputes in regarding to fishing or chase and murders arising out of these. Gruries being the woods, belonging to individuals in which the jurisdiction and the profit from such jurisdiction belong to the king, or at least to the seigneurs. The courts of the maitres referred to the forest territory placed under administration of the maitre particulier, forestmeister, and were established near the many royal foresters' courts of appeal in forest matters. A final appeal could be made to the table de marbre, courts of the marble table, which also decided on the more weighty questions of proprietorship by whatever term held, and especially civil and criminal cases relating to the eau et forêt, the wrongdoings in the discharge of official duties, abus, contraventions to the orders and regulations, misdemeanors or depredations, délits, and all kinds of fraud not included under those cited, malversation. The whole country was divided into eighteen arrondissements of Grande Maîtrise des Eaux et Forêts, and these were divided into 134 maîtrises, each under a maître particulier, with a lieutenant, a garde-marteau, a garde-général, two appentures, and a number of guard. A financial branch for the handling of monies, and the judicial branch represented by the three courts described above, completed the organization which lasted until the revolution, albeit some details were changed soon after its enactment, and the offices became again purchasable and hereditary. The sale of royal forests was again forbidden, penalties being provided for the eventual purchaser. Theft and incendiarism were severely punished, and specific rules of management were established. Clearings could only be made by permission even on the part of private owners, the methods of sale and harvest were determined. The prescriptions of older ordinances were renewed to the effect that at least thirteen to sixteen seed trees, Balivaux, her acre in the coppice, and eight seed trees in timber forest, were to be reserved in all forests without exception. Private owners were not to cut these seed trees before they were forty years old in the coppice and one hundred and twenty years in the timber forest, while in the public and church forests these seed trees were treated like reserves. Similarly, the prescription that no woods were to be cut before ten years of age was revived from former ordinances, at the time later, 1787, being increased for public forest to twenty-five years. Also, the obligation to keep one-fourth of the forest in reserve, which Charles IX had decreed in 1560, was renewed for the public forests, those belonging to corporations and other public institutions. For the fir forests of the mountains, which had become important as furnishers of shipmasts, Special regulations were issued, and the mass timber reserved for the crown. There was lively opposition to the enforcement of these prescriptions, especially where they interfered with property rights. Nevertheless, they persisted until the changes brought about by the Revolution of 1789. Certain prescriptions, as for instance the exclusion of shepherding, were never enforced, and this practice continues even today in certain sections. As a result of the reform, however, the revenues from the royal forests trebled in twenty years. During the eighteenth century, several famines occurred and led to the encouragement of extending farm operations at the expense of the forest, notably in the sixties, when among other similar efforts some two hundred families returning from Canada, after the English conquest, were colonized in the forests of Poitou. At that time, also the Declaration of 1766 exempted those who cleared land for farm purposes for fifteen years from all taxes. As a result of this invitation, some 750,000 acres were cleared, and the practice of clearing for farm use continued until the middle of the 19th century. In this way, by inconsiderately exposing soil which would not everywhere be found adapted to farm use, wastes naturally existing were greatly increased. The revolution brought with it sudden and disastrous changes. The law of 1791 abolished not only the jurisdiction of the maîtrise, but removed all restraint and thereby inaugurated widespread destruction and devastation of forest property, against which legislative attempts of the Republican government were entirely powerless. Not only did the peasants take advantage of this order, and the municipalities cut their reserves without hindrance, 
but extraordinary fellings in the state forests were necessitated by the needs of the navy and the echequier. In 1801, after various previous attempts at organization, Napoleon reorganized the service with five administrators, thirty conservators, two hundred inspectors, and eight thousand six hundred inferior officers. At that time, it appears that the revenue from the public forest domain amounted to six million dollars, a sum justifying such elaborate organization. But otherwise, the methods of Colbert's ordinance were revived. Devastation, however, continued. Incompetence in the service was again introduced, when in 1811 half the number of officials was recruited from superannuated army officers. In 1817, the whole forest service was abolished and the properties placed in the hands of the fiscal agents of the government, without any technical knowledge. The old order of things was, however, re-established in 1820, and soon after the final organization which has lasted to date was effected. 3. Development of Modern Forest Policy In 1822, a commission composed of foresters was instituted to revise the Ordinance of 1669, which here and there modified had continued to be valid, except during the revolutionary period. The result of the work of this commission was the Code Forestier in 1829, which is the law of the present day. In it, principles are laid down under which the state, communal, and other public forests are to be managed. All forests submitted to the Régime Forestier, namely the state and communal forests and those belonging to public institutions, are entirely managed by the State Forest Administration. The communities or other public forest owners paying for the service not to exceed nine cents per acre or five percent of the revenue. All jurisdiction and execution of forestry laws is in the hands of the officials of the forest administration. The foresters of the state have the exclusive responsibility of making and executing working plans without interference by the municipalities after the plans having once been submitted and approved by them. The corporations have not even the right to appoint their own guards, all such being appointed by the prefects of the departments upon recommendation by the forest department. The fellings usually performed by the purchaser, the wood being sold on the stump, are supervised most rigorously, making even the smallest deviation from the conditions of the contract sale, which otherwise would only entail the payment of damage, punishable by fine and the responsibility for any trespass which may occur on the land reaches 250 yards beyond the limits of the purchaser's territory, unless he gives proper warning and tries to find out the perpetrators of the same. Legal proceedings are brought before the courts of correction and are greatly simplified, as is customary in Germany. The public forest may not be sold, mortgaged, or divided, and the product can be sold only through state foresters. As in the olden times, one quarter of the stands in the timber forest and one-fourth of the felling budget in the coppice is placed in reserve for urgent and unforeseen needs. In addition to these and other restrictions which refer to the public forests, there are prescriptions which apply to all woods in general. All foresters employed, even on private properties, have sheriff's power. Walking in the woods with axe, saw, and wagon outside of the public roads which pass through them is forbidden. The making of fires is forbidden. The making of fire lines twenty yards wide between private forests can be enforced by either owner, and railroads along their rights of way are required to make such. By special law of 1893, the setting of fires even within two hundred yards of a wood is forbidden in certain regions, and the punishment of infractions of these laws is very severe. The rights of user are gauged by the administration according to the possible yield, even in private forests and are surrounded by many other restrictions. The wood falling under such rights of user is cut and delivered by the forest agents, and the rights can be forcibly extinguished by exchange of territory. Supervision of the communal forests, which had indeed existed since the 16th century, was by no means an easy task. The opposition to it, which had always existed and was in earlier times, justified by the incompetence and graft of the officials, continued even after this justification of it had ceased. Thanks to the tact and efficiency of the officials of the modern period, the opposition has been largely overcome, and thanks to the progress made in enforcing these rigorous laws, their necessity has almost vanished, and at present, relatively few infractions need to be investigated and punished. Moreover, the rigor of the original law was somewhat abated by the law of 1859. 
There are, however, voices which proclaim that the supervision by the government is not as thorough as it should be, and that the conditions of the communal property have deteriorated. While the supervision of the management of communal property is mainly based on fiscal considerations, the Code Forestier also authorizes the administration to interfere in the management of forests whose influence on the public welfare can be demonstrated. In order to assure the possibility of such interference, every private owner who desires to clear land is required to advise the government of his purpose. When the administration can prevent such clearing, if deemed necessary to prevent landslides, erosion, and torrential action, to protect water sources, sand dunes, for defensive purposes at the frontier, and for public health. Otherwise, the management of private forests is unhampered. By special legislation enacted in 1860 and 1882, however, the special cases of torrential action were taken care of in a special manner, which will be set forth in the following pages. The Reboisement Law of 1882 authorizes the administration to acquire by expropriation mountain forests or mountain slopes needed for reforestation for the sake of safeguarding them and preventing torrential damage. For Algiers, the same authorization to expropriate was extended by law of 1903 to include all such areas on which, according to the Code Forestier, the administration might forbid clearing, and such extension is advocated for the mother country. As a rule, the administration has been able to avoid expropriation and secure the territories by voluntary sale at less than $10 per acre. At present, the Forest Service is under the Minister of Agriculture as President of the Forestry Council, with a Director General as Vice President and Technical Head, and three Administrateurs Verificateurs General, chiefs of the three bureaux into which the administration is divided, each with two chiefs of sections, inspectors, and the necessary office staff. For purposes of the local administration, the forest area is divided into 32 conservations, each under charge of a conservateur, equivalent to the German Oberforstmeister. These are again subdivided into chefferie or, or inspections, two or twelve in each conservation, which are administrative units under the supervision of inspectors, 200, and assistant inspectors, 210. In addition, a special service for forest organization and reboisement employs 14 inspectors and some 20 assistants. The forest districts, or cantonment ranges, finally are under the direct charge of Garde General, 162, with the assistance of Garde General Stagiar, 67, and under-foresters or guards, brigadiers, 3,650, altogether a personnel of over 4,400 officials. While this is a larger force per acre, yet the expense for personnel per acre is less than one-half that of the Prussian Forest Administration and one-quarter of that in several of the other German state administrations. In 1909, a reorganization was effected improving to some extent the salaries. The legislation of 1909 also further strengthened state influence by placing certain private properties under the control of the administration and allowing the latter to undertake the management of private properties at the request of owners for a consideration. The budget for 1911 places the total expenditure for the Forest Administration at $3 million, 98 cents per acre, of which 950000 for reboisement and other improvement work. The receipts for the last five years have averaged near $7 million, so that a net result of $1.60 per acre seems attained, considering the expense of reboisement as new investment. 4. Work of Reforestation well, The most noted work of the Forest Administration, and one for which it deserves high credit, has been that of the reclamation of wastelands, of which in 1879 it was estimated there were still 20 million acres in extent, especially the reboisement work in the Alpine districts as a result of the law of 1882 has become celebrated. The movement for recovery of wastelands dates from the beginning of the 19th century, and today reforestation by state communal and private effort encouraged by legislative acts during the last 60 years has restored well-nigh more than 3 million acres of ground which have been lost to forest production. There are four definite regions of large extent in which systematic effort in this direction has been made, namely the sand dunes of Gascony and the Lande of southwestern France, the sandy plains of La Saone, the limestone wastes of Champagne, and the mountain slopes in the Vosges and Jura Alps. 
The sand dunes on the coast of France comprise around 350,000 acres. Those on the coast of Gascony and southwest France alone have an extent of nearly 250,000 acres, these being the most important and having for a long time endangered the adjoining pastures and fields. It seems that the land occupied by dunes was originally forested, and that these were created by deforestation. As early as 1717, successful attempts at reforestation were made by the inhabitants of La Teste, and from that time on sporadically small plantings came into existence. But the inauguration of systematic reforestation was begun only after a notable report by Bermontier, who, in 1786, secured as chief engineer of the Department of Bordeaux a sum of $10,000 to be employed in ascertaining the possibilities of draining the land by means of a canal and of fixing the dunes. As a result of this beginning, the method for their recovery having been in 1793 experimentally determined by Bramontier, 275,000 acres of moving sand had been fixed during that last century. The revolutionary government in 1799 created a commission of dunes, of which Bramontier was made president. An annual appropriation of $10,000 was made, later in 1808 increased to $15,000. In 1817, the work was transferred to the Administration des Pentes et Chaussées. The appropriations were increased until, in 1854, they reached $100,000 a year, and in 1865, the work being nearly finished, the dunes were handed over to the Forest Administration. There being still about 20,000 acres to be recovered, this was achieved in 1865, when 200,000 acres had been reforested at an expense of about $2 million, and an additional expense of $700,000 to organize the newly formed pine forests. Pinus maritima was entirely used. These at present with their resinous products and wood are furnishing valuable material. An unfortunate policy of ceding some of these forest areas to private and communal owners, who claimed them as of ancient right, and also of sales, was inaugurated just as the planting was finished, so that at present only 125,000 acres remain in the hands of the state. The returns from the sales, however, reimbursed the cost of the reposement in excess by 140,000, so that the state really acquired for nothing a property now estimated to be worth $10 million. A similar plantation on moving sands of 35,000 acres is found north of this tract. To the eastward of this region of dunes stretched the so-called Landa, a territory triangular in shape, containing two million acres of shifting sands and marshes, on which a poor population of shepherds on stilts used to eke out a living. In 1873, Chamberlain, an engineer of the Administration of Bridges and Roads, Administration des Pentes de Chaussées, conceived the idea of improving this section by reforestation, and at his own expense recovered some 1,200 acres in the worst marsh by ditching and planting. The success of this plantation invited imitators, and by 1855 the reforested area had grown to 50,000 acres. This led in 1857 to the passage of a law ordering forestation of the parts of the land owned by the state, as well as by the communities, the state at the same time undertaking the expense of building a system of roads and making the plans for forestation free of charge. The communities were allowed to sell a part of the reclaimed land in order to recover the expense, and sold some 470,000 acres for $2.7 million, of which less than $300,000 were used to forest the 250,000 acres belonging to them. From 1850 to 1892, private owners imitating the government and communal work, altogether nearly 1,750,000 acres, were covered with pine forest, at a cost of $4 to $5 per acre, or including the building of roads for a total expenditure of around $10 million. In 1877, the value of the then-recovered area was estimated at over $40 million, this figure being arrived at by calculating the possible net revenues of a pinery under a 75 years rotation, which was figured at $2.50 per acre, with a production of 51 cubic feet per acre and 200 quarts of resin at $3 each, an estimate of recent date places the value to the of the recovered area at $100 million. Centrally located between the valleys of the Loire and the Cher near Orléans lies the region of La Salonne, a sandy, poorly drained plain upon an impenetrable calcareous subsoil giving rise to stagnant waters. 
This region, too, had been originally densely wooded, and was described as a paradise in early times. But from the beginning of the seventeenth century to the end of the eighteenth it was deforested, making it an unhealthy, useless waste. By 1787, 1,250,000 acres of this territory had become absolutely abandoned. About the middle of the nineteenth century, a number of influential citizens constituted themselves a committee to begin its work of recovery, the director-general of forests being authorized to assume the presidency of that committee. As a result, a canal twenty-five miles in length and 350 miles of road were built, and some 200,000 acres, all non-agricultural lands, were sowed and planted with maritime and scotch pine, the state furnishing assistance through the Forest Service and otherwise. A setback occurred during the severe winter of 1879, frost killing many of the younger plantations, which led to the substitution of the hardier scotch pine for the maritime pine in the plantings. The cost per acre set out with about 3,500 two-year-old seedlings accounted to $5. An estimate of the value of these plantations places it at not less than $18 million, so that lands which 50 years ago could hardly be sold for $4 an acre now bring over $3 as an annual revenue. In the province of Champagne, south of Reims, a plain of arid limestone wastes of an extent which in the 18th century had reached 1,750,000 acres is found. About 1807, the movement for the recovery of these wastes began, first in a small way, gaining strength by 1830 after some sporadic experiments had shown the possibility of reforestation. And today, over 200,000 acres of coniferous forest, mainly Austrian and Scotch pine, largely planted by private incentive, are in existence, the better acres being farmed. It is interesting to note that land which fifty years ago was often sold without measurement by distance, as far as the cry would carry, and rarely for more than four dollars per acre, is today worth over forty dollars at a cost for planting of less than twenty-five dollars. The stumpage value of a thirty-years growth is figured at from fifty dollars to a hundred dollars. The total forest area is valued at ten million dollars, with net revenue from the 200,000 acres at $2 per acre. France is unfortunate in having within her territory, although so little mountains, the largest proportion of the area in Europe liable to torrential action. Not less than 1,462 brooks and mountain streams have been counted as dangerous waters in the Alps. The Cévennes and the Pyrenees mountains, or two-thirds of the torrents of Europe, an area nearly one million acres in extent of mountain slopes is exposed to the ravages of these waters by erosion. Here, the most forcible demonstration of the value of a forest cover and protecting watersheds was furnished by the results of the extensive forest destruction and devastation which took place especially during and following the years of the Revolution. Long ago, in the 16th century, the local parliaments had enacted decrees against clearing in the mountains, with severe fines, confiscation, and even corporal punishment, and these restrictions had been generally effective, but during the revolutionary period all these wholesome restrictions vanished. Inconsiderate exploitation by the farmers began, and the damage came so rapidly that in less than ten years after the beginning of freedom, the effect was felt. Within three years, 1792, the first complaints of the result of unrestricted cutting were heard, and by 1803 they were quite general. The brooks had changed to torrents, inundating the plains, tearing away fertile lands, or silting them over with the debris carried down from the mountains. Yet in spite of these early warnings and the theoretical discussions by such men as Bussengalt, Becquerel, and others, the destructive work by axe, fire, and overpasturing progressed until about eight million acres of tillable land had been rendered more or less useless, and the population of eighteen departments had been impoverished or reduced in number by emigration. A young engineer, Sorel, was the first to study the possibility of coping with the evil and proved in his Etudes sur la Torrente in 1841 its relation to forest cover and the need of attacking it at the sources. The first work of recovery was tentatively begun in 1843, but the political events following did not promote its extension until, in 1860, a special law charged the forest department with the mission of extinguishing the torrents. There were recognized two categories of work, the one considered of general public interest being designated as obligatory, the other with less immediate need being facultative. 
the territories devastated by each river and its affluence on which the work of recovery was to be executed were known as perimeters. In the obligatory perimeters, private lands were to be acquired by the state by process of expropriation, and communal properties were to be only, for a time, occupied by the state, and after the achievement of the recovery were to be restituted on payment of the expense of the work, or else the corporation could get rid of the debt by ceding one half of its property to the state. In the facultative perimeters, the state was simply to assist in the work of recovery by gratuitous distribution of seeds and plants, or even by money subventions in some cases. It appeared hard that the poor mountaineer should have to bear all the expense of the extinction of the torrents, and much complaint was heard. In response to these complaints, in 1864, a law was passed allowing the substitution of sodding instead of forest planting for at least part of the perimeters with a view of securing pastures. But this method seems not to have been successful and was mostly not employed. Finally, by the Reboisement Law of 1882, the complaints of the mountaineers were properly taken care of by placing the entire expense of the Reboisement work on the state. The attitude of the mountaineers, which was at first hostile due to the restriction of the pasture, has been overcome by the beneficial results of the work, and now the most hostile are ready to offer gratuitously their territory to the forest department. Wherever necessary, the state has bought territory, and from year to year has increased its holdings and continues to acquire land at the rate of 25,000 to 30,000 acres per year. The budget of 1902, for instance, containing $1 million for this purpose, that of 1911, only 40,000. Altogether, the state had, up to 1900, acquired 400,000 acres, of which 218,000 have been planted, and it is estimated that about 430,000 acres more will have to be acquired. The total expense, outside of subventions to communities and private owners, up to 1900, has been over $13 million, of which somewhat over $5 million was expended for purchases. It is estimated that round 25 to 30 million more will be needed to complete the work. Of the 1,462 torrents there were in 1893, 163 entirely controlled, and 654 began to be cured. Among the former, there were 31 which 50 years ago were considered by engineers incurable. It is estimated that with the expenditure of $600,000 per annum, the work may be finished by 1945. The names of Mathieu and de Montsay, especially the latter, are indelibly connected with this great work. Lately, however, Briot, in his classical work, Les Alpes Françaises, criticizes severely as improperly extravagant the large expenditures in places where the result does not warrant them, and proclaims as illusory some of the methods adopted. End of section 11. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.